Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We have been, over the last few weeks, looking at a Bible book called Acts. and It's an incredible story. It's the story of God's kingdom coming on the earth. It's dramatic, it's spectacular, it's magnificent, some of the things we've seen. It starts with Jesus being enthroned as the king of heaven and earth. He was crucified, he rose from the dead, he went up to heaven, and he is in charge of all things. And he sent his people out on his mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit, into the world. And we've seen the day of Pentecost, where it all kicked off. So uh, the Spirit poured out uh, on the gathered believers who were praying. And they started praising God. And it was coming out in all sorts of different languages that they never learned, that they never studied. But God's praises were being spoken. And the crowds in the city were hearing it. Wow, something amazing is happening. And one of them stood up and said, yeah, this is what God had promised from long ago. The Holy Spirit will be poured out. All your sons, all your daughters will prophesy and give God's praises. And so thousands of people gave their life to the Lord and were transformed and found faith and hope. And then they started gathering as the best church community you can imagine. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. There were miracles and awe was amongst them and no one was in need because they were all sharing their stuff and more people were getting added. And then last week we saw two of them went into the temple. They were going to worship and they saw a guy who couldn't walk beside the way and he was asking them for money and they didn't have any cash on them but they said, hey, Here's what we do have. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he got up, he was healed, he was dancing around, he was shouting and praising God. And everyone was like, wow, this is incredible. That's the story we've seen so far. So my question for you this morning is when you hear a story like that, how does it land with you? Like, What do you think? Do you, do you hear it and think, this is great because... I get it, I recognise it, this is our story today. I see the same things working out in my life and in our community. Come on, I've got faith, I've got expectation, great, let's go. Or maybe you hear it and you think, yep, that's interesting, that was their story, that was a long time ago, but let's be frank, that's a million miles away from my own experience and what I expect to see day by day. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. Maybe there's a little bit of one and a little bit of the other in how you know. Just think, how, how do you receive this story of Acts? How does it land on you? I think sometimes the challenge when we hear stories like that, that just seem all guns blazing, spectacular good, the challenge can be we, we look at different things going on and think, huh, it, it seems a bit contested to me. It doesn't seem as easy as that uh, in my life, in my experience. It seems there are things 
that push against it. It's almost like if you imagine like two waves in the sea coming and like they meet one another and they're pushing back. There's this story of God's kingdom coming and I think probably the majority of us in the room have seen bits of it, have some faith for it, have some expectation, but we also see a whole pile of other stuff, the way people respond, the circumstances in the world, the things we've seen that seem to push the other way and it's a bit of a contested space that God's kingdom is going into. And as the book of Acts tells the story, it's actually pretty real about that. Uh, These opening chapters have told some of the highlights, they've told some of the successes, but actually there's pushback, there are roadblocks and there are challenges to the story of God's kingdom advancing, which I find so helpful, really helpful, because that's how I've experienced it as well, that uh, as we look to see God's kingdom come, There are things that uh, seem like they get in the way. And if we don't acknowledge them, then what happens is, as they happen, as we start to see these things in life, it pours cold water over all our faith. And we read this story and think, well, that's just a different world from what I experienced. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 4. And then we're going to just pick out what are three of the challenges or roadblocks that we see to the advance of God's kingdom... And we'll see what God does about them. And my goal is to stir up some faith, to galvanise our confidence. That was a word as we were praying this morning. We felt God wanted to do something to bring us some confidence in what he's doing. Because God is at work and God is on the move. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read, it's quite a long reading today, it's verses 1 to 31. Um, But feel free to follow along as I read the words. Acts 4. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there's the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who'd heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, who were all of the high priestly family. When they'd made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Let's talk about the guy they healed. Um, And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It's become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realised they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognised them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who'd been cured standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, 
what will, be done, what will we do with them? For it's obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it, but to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. After they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it's you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples imagined vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, look at their threats. I grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So we're going to pick up three things in these verses that were challenges to the spread of God's kingdom. And the first one, we're looking at the first seven verses here, but we're calling it an entrenched establishment. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. But in, in the light of this entrenched establishment, God brings a different people, a disruptive minority. So those first few verses, you've got two very different things going on at the same time. You've got a group who are described as the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now, let's just uh, think about who those people are. The priesthood was set up in the time of Moses to help people worship. So, really, it was about serving, helping people give their sacrifices at the tabernacle or the temple. It was meant to facilitate people drawing close to God. But as time passed and as centuries went on, it became something very, very different. This was a day there was no separation of church and state. So these people who, they had some authority in the religious sphere. They were also looked upon to have judicial authority. So um, when there were judgments that needed making, they'd go to these people. They were also given authority in the political sphere. They had a lot of sway. They, they got to rule as well as serve in the temple. So if you've got kind of the priestly function, the ruling function, the judicial function, all tied up in the same people, can you see what's likely to happen? 
And so as they had the election of the high priest, all of a sudden, it became a lot less about, well, who's walking faithfully with God? Who's in a good place? Who will really help the people in their worship? It became much more about politics and about power. And people were campaigning for these positions. And it was based on who you know, who you've got in with, who you can do favours to. And it became something very, very different from what it was meant to be. It was a position of power. And then when someone got elected as high priest and they got to appoint people in the, the posts around it, who do they appoint into those positions? Well, they appoint their friends, they appoint their supporters, they appoint people who could prop up their power. So uh, they become quite entrenched in their powerful positions. Many of them were, were in league with Herod and with the Romans and with the occupiers who were pushing the people down. And it was financially incredibly lucrative. So archaeologists have dug up uh, what they describe as mansions that the priests would live in at a time when the, the normal Israelite people were struggling to survive. So it's about wealth, power, politics and prestige. They are what you would call the establishment. Along with them is mentioned the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees, they were like the theologians of the group. They had a particular take on God. And we're told later in the book of Acts that they believe there's no resurrection, there are no angels, there's no like spirits out there. So they had this view of God that was like, okay, maybe there's a story from history. Maybe there are some traditions that are useful, but actually there's no, uh, there's no God who's sovereign, who can break out, who can do stuff now. We're not expecting the supernatural power of God to invade our world today. And that's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence at all that people who are very um, kind of well-established in the status quo are advocating this theology that diminishes God, that makes him small, that makes him constrained and little. They definitely have a place for some kind of religion to the extent that it props up their power and gives the ordinary people something to focus on. But there's no space for a God who's totally sovereign, unconstrained and free to act in ways that break out of the box they've tried to create for him. That would be too much of a threat. A God like that might give people ideas. And so they came up with this theology that really diminished God. Actually, just as an aside, I find it striking that a lot of the the more liberal, God-reducing theologies we've seen over the last couple of centuries have all tended to emerge from cultures with wealth and power and vested interest in the status quo remaining the status quo. That is not a coincidence. That, that is what happens. People coming up with theology to support their agenda. So in the eyes of these people, all that's been going on, Jesus being Uh, enthroned in heaven, the Holy Spirit being poured out, thousands of people coming into this new group, this person who everyone seen healed. Well, what's that? That's a threat, isn't it? That's something that disrupts them. Because if Jesus is the new king, if Jesus has all the power and all the authority, then what does that say about these priests and these Sadducees who would claim power and authority? They wanted to be the gatekeepers to God, but now God's working in a totally different way that's seeming to bypass them. And we know what Jesus said about the temple, don't we? How he went in and turned the tables over. And we know what Jesus said about lifting up the poor and bringing down the rich. I mean, it's a a threat. And maybe if, if they just let it slide and Peter and John are out doing what they're doing... 
Maybe it'll give other people ideas and maybe this system that they've so carefully constructed with themselves in these positions will start to crumble down. So they need to snuff it out before it's even begun. They arrest them, they try bullying them into staying silent, they try putting pressure on them and intimidating them not to speak of Jesus. So if that's the threat, if that's the thing that seems to be contrary to the kingdom coming, this worldly power being exercised through establishment entrenched authority, what's God's counter to that? It isn't to go head to head. So sometimes we might think, okay, well, I know what God can do. God can get his own person as high priest. God can get, maybe Peter can, he can be the new captain of the temple and John can depose Caiaphas and, and, so that, and they can start to rule with this same power. God can put his own people in those positions, right? Which frankly is what a lot of people in the day wanted. They were expecting God to do something like that. They were expecting a kind of Messiah who'd come in and seize worldly power and start to wield it over the people. And actually, it's what a lot of people seem to long for today. It's what a lot of people seem to think should happen in society and how the the church should be positioned in society. But it's not what God seems to be doing here. God seems to be working differently, not through people at the top of the pile, but God seems to be working from underneath. God seems to be working from the bottom of society through ordinary people who are uncontrollable by this power being exerted, filled with the spirit and bringing the kingdom wherever they go in a way that can't be squashed down. This carries a potency that entrenched establishment power can never stamp out. We read a book recently by Walter Brueggemann called Prophetic Imagination. Absolutely fantastic. Really commend it. And he speaks into this. He says, the key players, it turns out, are those who refuse to be credentialed or curbed by traditional modes of power, who understand that the transformative power of truth is not a credible companion for consolidating modes of established power but that truth characteristically runs beyond the confines of such power. Just let that sink in for a moment. Do you see what's happening here? Through not um, operating in the same way as the priests are, many, many people are having their lives transformed through the message Peter and John and the others are bringing. It says in verse 4, many who heard the word believed. They numbered about 5,000. A few weeks ago, that's all it was, weeks, the day of Pentecost, it said 3,000. It seems to be spreading like wildfire because God is on the move. Something similar happened in the 1960s. So in in China, Chairman Mao decided he wanted to use his worldly power to stamp out the gospel. He expelled all the missionaries. He he made it so uh, it, it was illegal to practice Christianity in China. There were less than a million Christians in China at the time. Uh, and many in the West feared, okay, this is just going to completely uh, kill all Christianity in the nation. When the borders open up, there won't be any Christians there. Turns out that wasn't the case. Turns out that underground, in a way that couldn't be stopped by this earthly power, the gospel was at work. Lives were being changed. Millions on millions on millions were added. When the borders opened, there were tens of millions of Christians. God had been at work. Now there's over 100 million Christians in that nation. God can't be squashed by establishment entrenched power. 
I think this does something interesting, doesn't it? I think when you reflect on this, it gives us confidence when we see people trying to do that. When we see people trying to push down the gospel using their political position. I've seen too many times when elections have gone a certain way and there's an outcry like, okay, well, because this person's in power, okay, well, the gospel must not advance in that country anymore. It's going to stop the work of God. No, it isn't. No, it isn't because no one can do that. No earthly power is able to constrain what God's doing. And I think it also profoundly challenges what we think God is all about and what we think he's building. God's building something Jesus-shaped, not worldly-shaped. It's not about human earthly power. Mark 10, it says, You know among the Gentiles those whom they recognise as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. It's a very different thing. It's from the bottom, not from the top. And this brings us on to our second potential block for the gospel, though, because if God's not going to work through people who are credentialed, who are empowered, who are impressive, then what does he have left to work with? People who are pretty ordinary, people who are run-of-the-mill, people who might not seem particularly special. And what can he do with people like that? I mean, think about Peter and John. What do we know about those guys? They were... They were fishermen, they, they would have worked in a small family fishing business that probably went back generations. It was an ordinary run-of-the-mill work. Their education level would have been basic. We know they could read and write, but they wouldn't have gone through all the uh, training in rhetoric and all the, the special advanced training the Sadducees and the priests would have had. Their breeding was pretty... Um, Unimpressive. They were from up in the sticks in Galilee. They weren't from Jerusalem. They certainly weren't from Rome or Athens, the big centres of learning and power. I don't know if you've heard the phrase, can anything good come from Galilee? That was the reputation it had. They were just ordinary fishermen from out in the sticks. And they were young. I mean, Peter would have been in his 20s at the time. John was likely in his late teens. So they're not at all the kind of people you think, oh yeah, these are the obvious candidates. God's going to do something incredible through them. And this led, this religious council that had gathered and uh, made them stand before them, it led them to underestimate Peter and John. I I wonder if you saw verse 7, where they asked the question, by what power or by what name did you do this? The emphasis in that question is on the word you in quite a derogatory way. It's like, by what power or name did you do this? How could someone like you create an effect like that? That's the way they're asking it. Or in verse 13, once Peter and John have started to give their reply, it says they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realised they were uneducated and ordinary men. I quite like the words that are in the original language here for uneducated and ordinary. It gets the sense of what they're conveying. Uneducated was agrammatoi. You might notice the bit in the middle, grammar. Sounds like grammar. So agrammatoi, they don't have grammar. And ordinary men, idiotai. Um, so, so basically they're ungrammatical idiots is the flavour we're getting. Um, they were underestimated. I wonder if sometimes we can do this with ourselves. As, as we start to dream, as we start to think, hey, I'd love to see God work, but God's not going to do it 
through me. Maybe those people over there. Maybe those people who've uh, had the extra training, those people who've got position or experience or whatever it is. But God couldn't bring transformation to my workplace. I'm, I'm just too ordinary. I'm nothing special. I can't see God working through someone like me. I'm not one of those super Christians. Can, can we agree, like in light of events that have happened recently and not so recently and not so recently, it keep happening over and over again. Can we agree that the whole super Christian thing is not a thing? Can we just like put that one to bed? It's, it's not all it's hyped up to be. God works through ordinary people, people like Peter and John, people like you and me, people who work in ordinary jobs or people who study in ordinary ways or spend their time doing ordinary things. God works through people whose education level and learning might be pretty basic. He works from, through people from all sorts of places. You might think, I'm just from, I'm from the backwaters. I'm from nowhere special. He works through young and old alike. The people others would write off, God works through. So what makes the difference well, it says that these people, when they saw Peter and John, realised they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and they recognised them as companions of Jesus. In some of the translations, it said they saw that they'd been with Jesus. God didn't work through Peter and John because they were particularly qualified or educated or had good breeding or were holy. God works through ordinary people who've been with Jesus, because it's Jesus that makes the difference. He's the one that, that remakes, remoulds, that works through us. It's his power. In verse 8, as Peter stands up to speak, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, went on to speak. That's what it is. They'd been with Jesus and were filled with the Spirit. It's that simple. I, I would encourage you, if you want to see God work through you, if you want to see God make a difference, it's not about you being impressive. Spend time being with Jesus. Get filled with his Spirit and see what God does. God brings extraordinary impact through ordinary people. The third thing just to highlight in this passage is how to handle the pressure to be silent. This is the third block that we see to the kingdom of God coming. Once these authorities have heard from Peter and John, they're in a bit of a quandary. They don't know what to do next. Because in verse 16 they say, an obvious sign has been done and everyone in Jerusalem knows it. And then they want to stop it. Now, when I read that, I was like, hang on a second, hang on, hang on. I don't really get this. Like, You've just acknowledged that a sign has been done that's really obvious. But your first instinct is how do we shut them up? Surely if you see that a sign has been done, surely that should just give you pause for thought. Hey, let's think what this might mean. Let's like reconsider the implications. But often when people don't want to see Jesus... It's more than just, oh, I don't have the evidence. Often there's more going on. Often there's a desire. I just want to stop it. I don't want to face what this could be. This is too much of a threat to me. So they're willfully blind. So what they do is they warn Peter and John to stop talking about Jesus. They don't say, you're going to go into prison. They don't say you can't believe anymore. They don't say you can't have your little community of faith anymore. 
All they say is just stop spreading the news about this. Stop telling other people. Just let it be what it is. You know, you do your faith as a little private thing for your little community. Don't spread beyond the bounds of that and you'll be okay. We'll leave you alone. Everything will be fine. And that's the deal that's on the table for Peter and for John. You can have your faith as long as it's hemmed in. I think there's a very similar deal on offer today. Now, it's not spoken out loud in the same way as it was for them, but do you recognise this? Does this seem to be the vibe of our culture? It's fine. You do you. You have your faith. If it works for you, we're really pleased about that. You have your church. I'm glad it encourages you, but just stay in your own lane. Just don't spread beyond that. Don't start bringing it into conversations with us. As long as you keep yourself to yourself, it's fine. We can have a standoff and we can have a peace. So easy to go along with that, isn't it? It's so easy to think, you know what, we'll just get on with doing what we're doing. We'll take the deal and everything will be okay. And we don't need to be uncomfortable. Well, Peter and John... Say no deal. In verse 20, they said, look, look, we cannot keep from speaking what we've seen and heard. For them, this was the most important thing. If they can't witness to the resurrection of Jesus, the earth-shattering monumental news, if they can't do that, then there's no point in the whole thing. This is the centre of the mission. And so for them, this was a non-negotiable. Friends, we must not take that deal. We must not say we'll just keep ourselves to ourselves. We need to say, like they said, we cannot keep from speaking what we've seen and heard. Because the reason is given in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. There is no other way for people to be saved. So if we stay in our lane, if we just keep ourselves to ourselves, then think about the world out there who don't hear about this salvation. Jesus is the only way to be saved. He's the only way to God. We can't stay silent. The time is urgent and the mission is real. Staying quiet when we have the best news of all is not a loving thing to do. No matter what we tell ourselves, it's fear, it's not love that compels us to stay quiet. I'm so struck by how the believers prayed after the council gave the instruction. It's different to how I pray. It's different to how I hear many of us pray. What we tend to do if something like this happens is we say, God, would you change the circumstances? God, would you give us favour? God, would you make it easier so we can do it. God, give an opportunity. God, open a door. They pray, God, would you make us bold? God, we're going to have to stand up to some stuff here. God, we're going to have to go into a place that's difficult on this mission. So make us bold. Keep us from backing away in fear. And God answered that prayer. He poured out the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've clocked, today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, And Pentecost was the day God poured the Spirit out on the church for the first time. But as we read through Acts, he does it again and again and again. Pentecost was not a one-time event. It's an event that keeps happening. And as these believers gathered together, God poured his Spirit on them afresh. And God pours his Spirit out on his people 
today. But I think that idea of boldness, that word in particular, I think that's a word for our time. Because when we think about sharing our faith, of course we want to do it well. Of course we want to be humble and relational and not obnoxious in the way we talk to people. Of course, that's really important. But if the boldness piece isn't there and we never get to the point of saying, Jesus is the only way to salvation, you need to trust in him, then what does all of it achieve? This boldness that we're talking about, where it comes from, is the Holy Spirit. We can't just stir ourselves up. We can't just think, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to charge in by my own strength. It's given by God. The Holy Spirit does a work. God's answer to this contested space where the kingdom's coming, but it's also pushed back on, is a disruptive community of ordinary people filled with the Spirit of God. It changed the world then. It's been changing the world for the last 2,000 years, and it's changing the world today. We need to be filled again with the Holy Spirit. I I don't know, when you think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, what comes to mind? Like, I I think sometimes we make it like, okay, I'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then I'll shake a bit, and then I might shiver. Or I'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then I'll start speaking in tongues. Now, these things might happen when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, But they don't seem to be at the centre of what it is when the Bible talks about it. The promise Jesus made right at the start of Acts is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. It's an empowerment for the task at hand. Or in our passage today, the last verse, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's what being filled with the Spirit does. How does it happen? How do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's really not complicated. Like sometimes people will say there is no formula. Yeah, maybe. But I I think there kind of is a formula to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think this passage gives us a clue. Because what happens is they go to God and they ask, God, we want to be bold for the mission. And so God answers the prayer and fills them. It's like what Jesus promised. Luke 11, verse 13 If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to who? To those who ask him. Sounds like a formula to me. Hey, you want to be full of the Spirit? Ask. Ask God and see what God does. He's the one who pours out his Spirit. But he's invited us to ask. 